Attention architects and creative minds, get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, we've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned, what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. In this episode, we talked to Michael Port. He's the author of nine books, including Book Yourself Solid and Steal the Show. He's also the co-founder and the CEO of Heroic Public Speaking. This conversation with Michael is another one that's been on my wish list for quite a while. On my website, I have a suggested reading list for architects, and Book Yourself Solid has been on that list since day one. It's written for service professionals like architects, and it's so incredibly actionable. It's part book where you learn great information and part workbook where you put that information into action. So it's learn and apply, learn and apply all the way through the book. I really appreciate it for that fact. Now, when we start these conversations, I always have a rough map of the conversation in my mind and have some idea of 
what I want to cover and what I think we'll cover. Sometimes the conversations don't exactly play out the way I had imagined. Sometimes, with an ode to Bob Ross, what comes out is a happy accident that goes into wonderfully unexpected directions. You're going to have to listen to this backstage conversation to learn what it was, but we ended the conversation with Michael on a personal epiphany for me that I think may be the key to communicating the true value of your work as an architect. How's that for a teaser? Normally for these episodes, we're joined backstage by guests from the Context and Clarity community. For this episode, though, it's just Catherine and me. Of course, Catherine McPhail is my co-host, and she's an architect and a podcaster from Arlington, Massachusetts. In addition to Context and Clarity, Catherine hosts Talking Home Renovations with the House Maven, and she's the CEO of Demios Architects. As always, I'm looking forward to talking about our takeaways from the conversation. So let's go backstage and listen in as Catherine McPhail and I talk about our conversation with Michael Port. I was really kind of happy that we took some tangents and we talked about uh, heroic public speaking and the the tie between his mm-hmm. speaking work and the book yourself solid. And, um, to me, a, a, a special twist towards the end that we can, we can talk about maybe later as, as we uh, get into this conversation, but I enjoyed the conversation. I was just a little bit surprised that we, uh, we didn't get too tactical. Yeah. I thought the stuff he said about the transformational speech, if you were giving a speech, it should be transformational to the audience and to you. And if it's not, you're not changing the world with that speech. And he compared that to architecture. I thought that was interesting way of looking at that. I believe that a speech is the power to change the world and the people in it, including the speaker and including the speaker is the key because what I've discovered over the years, after 20 years of doing this is that I've yet to see someone deliver a speech. And I think you could probably say the same thing about uh, uh, any kind of building, something that an architect designs. I've yet to see somebody who is in the service uh, industry create something that is transformational for other people that wasn't also transformational for themselves. So if you're going to give a speech that changes the world in some way, that gets people to feel differently and think differently and act differently, then the development of that speech is going to need to do the same for you. If it's easy for you, it's going to be too easy for them. And that means it's not provocative and it doesn't challenge them. It doesn't challenge the status quo and offer them a new approach, a visionary approach that in some way changes the way they see the world, which is what actually changes the world. And I would venture to say, of course, I'm not an architect, but, but I would venture to say that if you're an architect and you're doing work that's really easy, doesn't challenge you, doesn't provoke you, it's unlikely that kind of work is going to, um, is going to be world-changing in some way or is going to change the way people feel and change the way they think and change the way they act. And we don't need to think about this you know, so broadly you know, because when we say change the world, it seems, you know, such a big effort. Uh, really, if we if we help one people think bigger about who they are and what they offer the world or 
uh, become more connected to their family because of the space that they live in uh, or, um, or are more, more collaborative and creative because of the space that they work in. That is world changing. And so ultimately our work is only as good as we're willing to challenge ourselves. And if we do challenge ourselves, then maybe we can challenge other people to think a little bit differently, maybe a little bit bigger uh, and find more connection uh, through the experiences that they have. That tie between the idea that a good speech, as you said, a good speech should be transformational for the audience and the speaker. And then, as you said, tying that to architecture, that, that really spoke to me because I truly believe that the architect's one job is to make the life of your client better, whatever that means in their context. And I thought that was a great tie-in. If we're not striving towards, and I do like the realism, I do like the fact that that Michael says, hey, listen, we can talk about this as, you know, 100% of the time, you know, 100% of projects, 100% of clients, but we're not going to make it, right? We're not perfect and our clients aren't perfect and all of these things. Um, so so having an aspirational view is is important. And I, I love the mindset of, you know, thinking about, how am I going to make this next engagement with this client somehow transformational? And again, I, you know, I don't know that, I don't know what that means. It depends on the context and, and everything else, but, but how am I going to set, set out in that aspirational mindset from the very beginning, I guess. Yeah. And he, he basically said, if it's too easy, if what you're doing is too easy, then you're not making a difference. So that was made me think about things as well. Also, um, I, I liked what he said about when someone asked about ideal clients and how do you find ideal clients? He had this values uh, checklist somehow or a way of figuring out during the initial conversation if your values align, because if they do, you'll do better work for that person, which I thought was a, another way, an interesting way of putting it again, you know, another angle I hadn't looked at before. And yeah. Chris at that time said, it sounds like a good opportunity to create a form of value-based questions that take to you to the first meeting or call. I saw Chris's comment and uh, that it was a very good comment. And I was thinking something similar because Michael had a question and I thought, yes, yes, we, that's what we need to do. We need to come up with this checklist, this list of questions, whatever it is to go into the conversation. And of course, you know, I'm always pulling out this book or that book or the other. And, you know, in, in the, in the sense of Blair ends and pitch in win without pitching, talking about having that conversation. And, and that's where his version of the proposal comes from. Um, you can't get there without these types of questions and these types of conversations and I also uh, thought about Dan Kennedy's ideal mindset scorecard that he created. And that, that's a longer story, but I, I was, I've been fascinated by this, the scorecard thing that, that he came up with. And it's, it's, it's like a survey in a well, in a way, but it, you, you score, you know, based on what your answer is, you fall in this range and that range. 
And I've gotten fascinated by that. And so I was watching a series of videos where Dan was talking about how he created it, why he created it, and how he used it. And when Michael started talking about it, and, and he threw out that one question, that's, that is very similar to the goal of that mindset scorecard. Because what we're trying to do is find the people that we align with. And, and Dan Kennedy goes so far as to say that when we're thinking about our ideal clients, we're looking for people that are like us. You know, not literally, you know, they're 52-year-old white guy in the middle of the country, that, that kind of thing. But same beliefs, same values, those types of things, because that's how we're going to align on the things that matter the most. And so that, that I thought was, um, I'm, I completely agree with you. That was a great, uh, um, great point of the conversation. There's so many ways that these books are similar, uh, different concepts just looked at from a slightly different angle at sometimes I have, there's more of a breakthrough in my mind when I read it and a, one person says it versus like how another person's framing it. So, and the red, the whole red velvet rope policy and how, if you're kind of you can violate that sometimes, but how important that is to even make a, a red velvet rope policy. And I realized that I, um, and then he talked about building trust too. Right. And I realized I don't trust myself because I have these red velvet rope policies that I ignore. So therefore I don't trust myself to screen people for me because I don't do it. I need to, be, I need to get my, I need to build that relationship and like trust relationship with myself. I think maybe that's why to me, this book is, or I think this book is as important as it is because, you know, there's this, I hadn't thought about it until we started talking about it today, but, but this is a very purpose-driven book. I'll say it that way. And it, it all kind of comes back, you know, if you start with the red velvet rope policy, which basically is how you're going to determine who your ideal client is, you know, who you will let on this side of the rope, who you work with and who you don't, those types of things. But at the heart of those in the book, and, and Michael talked about this a little bit today, was that what we really need to be doing, you know, and back to that idea of transformational work, I guess, if we're going to do that kind of work, then we have to be doing it for the people that we serve the best. Anything we choose to do in our business, we need to, we need to consider contextually, how does it relate to everything else we're doing? And so when I wrote this book, uh, I, I, I made, I made the first chapter of the red velvet rope policy because I think it's the first fundamental building block of being booked solid. And a red velvet rope policy is a filtration system that allows in only your most ideal clients, clients that energize you and inspire you. And most importantly, allow you to do your best work. Because what happens when you're doing your best work? Two things. Number one, people are out talking about your best work. And number two, you'll love the work that you do. So if nobody's talking about your work, it's hard to pick up business. If you're not loving the work you do, you're probably not going to do great work. So it's very confronting, which is why I put it as the first chapter, because especially when you're starting, you think, wait, you mean that means I have to say no to some people? I don't understand that. I, I need the work. I mean, I, I got you know student loans to pay. 
And, and yes, I really do understand it. And absolutely, you know, you could have a looser red velvet rope policy, you know, at the beginning, and then you could tighten it up as you go. But if you don't create that policy, then you may find yourself working with dud clients, people that drain your energy, people that make you feel like your work isn't worthwhile, uh, people that make you feel like you want to do bodily harm to them. <laughs> and, and you don't want to be in that situation. Generally, not a great way to book yourself solid. Part of his definition of ideal client is the people that you do your best work for. And it's hard for a lot of us to say no. Absolutely, it's hard. Yeah, someone needs help. I think a lot of us were, had a similar question earlier this week. I don't know if the profession attracts people that just want to help people. You know, I don't, I don't know. Maybe. But there's an awful lot of us around here like that, certainly. And, you know, I think understanding that if, if our role is to truly be transformational and we can only do that with the people that we do our best work for, maybe that gives us some mechanism to say no more often. Knowing that I can help people the best when they're aligned with my values and not, I, I do see that in projects that aren't aligned with my values that I don't want to work on them. I kind of want it to be over. And so I don't do my, I don't do my best work for those people, even though I want to help them. If someone calls me up and says, oh, someone recommended you and I don't really have any money and I want to do this project that I can't afford, then I think, oh, she doesn't have any money. I guess I should go work for her. <laughs> so I don't know. And then I end up presenting it and then I, I just don't do, I'm just kind of ashamed of the work that I end up doing because I don't want to work, you know, so that's no good. It's just not serving anybody. Let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors, Systems and Standard Operating Procedures. You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom that you want. You need systems and procedures, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need the most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love to do the most. The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to becoming managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so that he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass. And then start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free. It's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core. 
the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and your people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to the conversation. I love the fact that it's it's a completely actionable book. You can you could theoretically go off this weekend, you know, do a retreat and and go through this book and fill out all of the you could. I mean, I it's sort of working on that side of the profession and doing those types of things with clients. It's it's it really deserves more than a weekend worth of work to, to really get to the, the, the quality and the answers that you really want. But, but you can, I mean, that's, that's the way it's set up. So you can go through it and you can, you can, um, you can do these things and you can apply them. And uh, so I think, I think it's a fantastic resource in that sense. Also, uh, when you go to a networking event, always hold your drink in your left hand so you can shake hands. And I loved that he said, men do not shake a woman's hand any differently than you shake a man's hand. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. That is yeah. great. You asked the question about the pronouns that he used in the book. A lot, a lot of female pronouns. And you asked him, I think you, you asked if that was on purpose or something like that. I yeah, think. I asked if that was intentional that he, I noticed yeah. that he used far more feminine pronouns than anybody else does in books that I read. Yeah. And, and that kicked us off or, or kicked him off into really this explanation. Number one of, of why and his feelings about inclusivity. He, I don't think he ever said being inclusive, but that's really what he was talking about was inclusivity and then creating a safe place. And that became an epiphany for me. Uh, We live in a very sexist, patriarchal world where uh, men have been dominant for as long as we've been here. Thankfully, that has been changing rapidly. But but I want to make sure that everybody is heard and seen. And this is something that I address with, with my students who are speakers, because it's important to, to consider the language that we use. So for example, if, if you regularly use, when you're speaking to say a group, uh, the expression, you guys, you guys, you guys. Now I'm from New York city. That's where I grew up. So that's a very Northern expression, but it's also a, a very male expression. Not everybody in the room is a guy. So, uh, so, you know, we, it's a good idea to consider is any of the language we're using excluding people that we don't want to exclude? Now that's different than being bold about your work. Meaning I absolutely want to push away people from my business who are not right for the business. Like I don't want anybody coming to work with us who are like get rich quick seekers. You know, so I really push away. I really focus on the rigor that's required to do this kind of work. But but I want to make sure that everybody, no matter the color of their skin, gender, sexual orientation, 
feels welcome and safe. And, and so let's talk about safety for a second, Catherine, because I think your question um, really speaks to safety. And, and if, you're, if the people you serve feel, in, feel safe with you very quickly, they're much more likely to hire you. They're much more likely to stay with you. But if they don't feel safe, they're going to run. And now, what is I don't mean safe as in that they think you're going to hurt them. I mean, I'll give you an example. I, I had a when, when I first started in business, I had an accountant who made me feel stupid very often because I would ask questions. He'd be like, "What? You don't you don't know that?" I'm like, I I don't know that. I, I used to be an actor. I mean, I just you know, <laughs> I mean, I I was in, I, I worked in corporate America for about five years, but still I, you know, I wasn't in finance. Uh, so, so now my accountant makes me feel so safe because I can ask him anything. He will never make me feel stupid. He just takes such good care of me. And as a result, I am so much better educated because I'm willing to ask the questions uh, that, um, that, you know, I wasn't willing to ask before because I was afraid. And so we all need to take a good look at our personality and ask ourselves, well, how are we leading out there? Are, are we leading with arrogance? Are we leading with, um, with superiority? Are we leading with, uh, with defensiveness? Because the clients will pick that up really quite quickly. Now that we've had that conversation, it's not surprising to me at all, but I've never, I've never thought about it or heard it framed in that way. But when I think about all the architects that I, that I work with as clients that struggle with client experience or, um, you know, the relationships or, um, people value, valuing and trusting them and all these that idea of creating a safe place as the first step was, was just that light bulb moment. It's like, yes, if someone is worried that you're going to design something that's out of their budget, just as a super simple example, we haven't done a good job of creating a safe place. We haven't been able to discuss that and really kind of get to the point where Everybody trusts that we are. We all have the same goals and things like that. And I thought that was a, a wonderful way to wrap up the conversation, uh, talking about a safe place. And it started with your question about the the uh, the female pronouns. So thank you for asking that. Yeah, and, and then you said later that you felt like maybe when he was using bad examples, he was using more male, letting the males be the examples of what not to do for a change. Maybe I, I did say that. Um, I think we were, that was afterwards, right? We, it was just you and I, Michael had already, yeah, we weren't live anymore, but I think I did notice that, that, you know, Hey, here's this, here's this example. And maybe it's an example of maybe not the right way to do it, the wrong way to do it, or, you know, a, a negative, some, some sort of negative example. And I think I noticed that most of those were male. I, I think I did notice that sort of the, the here's what not to do examples were mainly male, male pronoun examples. I don't know if that's the right way to say it. Um, I was, I was, 
that was kind of tickling my brain a little bit. And then you brought up the, um, the amount of female pronouns that he used and I, that kind of triggered it. And I actually, uh, what, what we talked about was, I actually think that's a good thing because traditionally many times I have no, nothing but anecdotal evidence and, and observations, but the, the hero characters are quite often male characters. And I think it's, it's very healthy to have the negative examples be male examples. And so I, you know, I appreciate that. You know, it's, again, it's, we've been talking about this a lot and I think we need to keep talking about it a lot is how do we create this equitable, uh, equitable space? Right, right. That was the first person I've, I've read people talk about it, but that was the first time that I had noticed. In fact, I noticed it because it was excessive meaning that made me realize that it's not somewhere that I always see myself reflected in the business practices that we're talking about, you know, and I'm just used to it. But then, so it kind of touched me in a way that, um, that's was not like that in that book anyway. So it was, it was, um, I liked his whole approach to that. I I did too. I think it was, I think it's great. I, I never met Michael before, never talked to him before today. Um, but I, I do feel like he is um, a, a very good human being. Um, and I've also heard very good things about his speaking. The, the uh, heroic public speaking is the business now. That's, that's what his focus is. And I've, I've heard great things about the workshops and everything that they do. You know, these backstage conversations that Catherine and I, and sometimes we're joined by guests, you know, these are our takeaways. This is what we think that we can do uh, now that we have learned something and, and had this conversation with our, our guests. So, you know, what are you going to do with it? I guess is the question that you need to answer as you listen to this. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Well, what did you think? Did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today? If you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity Live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment, and it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, Join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. 
I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week. And in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us. Can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my the one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.